Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, July 31st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we'll hear about a collaborative effort in Mississippi to create a national model for saving families and keeping children out of foster care. Then, will more Mississippi moms breastfeed now that it's publicly protected by law? And find out how new rules in public housing could protect residents from secondhand smoke exposure. Over 7,000 individuals each year die from lung cancer from secondhand smoke, and over 33,000 other individuals die from chronic illnesses like heart disease that's attributed to secondhand smoke. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. pilot project spearheaded by the Mississippi Supreme Court hopes to make the state the model for a new federal child welfare law. The Family First Prevention Services Act provides funding to help at-risk families stay together. First Lady Deborah Bryant and Justice Don Beam launched the state's Family First initiative on Monday. Six communities will serve as pilot projects where public and private partnerships will collaborate to help families and reduce the number of children in foster care. Bryant tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the collaborative effort was needed. We knew that this needed to be done. Looking forward to working across the state agencies and 501c3s, connecting the dots, doing whatever we can to bring all of Mississippi together, help our people in Mississippi. Last year you had a summit about how to begin to deal with the issue of foster care and and trying to make it more seamless and help families and not just uh, put children in homes. Will this push that effort forward? Yes, it will. You know, these children, I remember one uh, time that I went to a home that was a transitional home uh, for children that had been taken into custody and waiting for a foster care home. And I remember this little bitty girl, and I think she might have been four years old, uh, going and standing on the couch and looking out at the window uh, asking for her mama. And that just broke my heart. These children want to stay with their families. And we have such a huge foster care issue here in the state. And I think that's what we do is we support the families because we have to be make the families where these children are safe there, uh, they're thriving, and we can do everything that we can to make families what a family should be. And so what is your message to Mississippians about this program, Family First? What do you want the takeaway to be? The takeaway is to all families that there is help, there is support, there are people there willing to walk you through your hard times, whether it be faith-based or state agencies or whoever. We really don't want it to be the state agencies. We want it. We want Mississippi community supporting all Mississippians. And families are so important, and we are all so busy. Families have to work or they get caught up in daily living, and we forget our children's needs and what they need. You know, I just want Mississippians to know there's hope out there, to bring the hopelessness into hopefulness, and that's what we're here for. Well, First Lady Bryant, thank you so much for speaking with us. You're so welcome. Thank you. Dawn Beam is Supreme Court Justice and co-chair of the Children's Justice Commission. She tells our Desiree Frazier more about the goals of the initiative. What we know is that 
our children don't want a new family. They want us to help fix their families. And it starts with the judiciary. We are the ones that deal with these families every day. Our goal is to reduce the number of foster children coming into custody in the state and also to strengthen the family and to prevent and be proactive in um, combating neglect. Eighty-two percent of our cases in youth court are neglect. Eighty-two percent of the removals are neglect. So the judiciary, we deal with that family in every capacity, whether that be justice court with family um, arguments and domestic violence, youth court where our children are being directly affected, and even um, the, the, the crime rate um, directly affects our children. And so the judiciary will lead this effort. We have six pilots. Those judges will invite the area leaders in the, in the community together. We will do a SWOT analysis, and we need those area leaders to decide for them themselves, that they weren't going to put up with business as usual anymore, that we're going to put families first. And funding, because this sounds like it's going to take them coming up with a plan, and how are we going to pay for it? So how will that be done? Well, you know, it's amazing that um, God has provided the state-level effort. Um, we have the Casey Foundation that is, has stepped up and said, we believe in putting families first. We also have a federal act that was passed in February of this year, and we have folks from Washington that are coming today to say that Mississippi is going to be the model for the Family First Prevention Act that was passed in February. What that act says and recognizes is that the business, as usual, of being reactive to children that are victims of neglect and abuse is not working. We need to be proactive. So that um, new federal act and them allowing Mississippi to be the model will open up new funding for drug treatment facilities and will really challenge all of us to be outside-the-box thinkers. So we're looking to for federal, the federal funds coming down. So there is something for everybody to do in Mississippi. Justice Don Beam. John Davis is executive director of the State Department of Human Services. He says his agency's role is expanding to reach more partners. We actually work in, in tandem with them to help eliminate barriers for individuals who are seeking self-sufficiency and independence through employment or perhaps even education, workforce development, whatever we need to do to assist those individuals that are seeking our assistance through human services. And as this moves along, will you have a bigger role? Human services in Mississippi has always played a huge role in helping individuals move our transition from dependence into independence. So I think uh, maybe instead of saying a huge role, maybe a more collaborative role with other agencies, with other nonprofits, uh, with opportunities that we can uh, braid services together. Uh, without overlapping services, for instance, work pro, uh, workforce programs, uh, instead of having it in 13 programs like under my umbrella agency, we can have one workforce program that would go across even other agencies. Uh, so not only within the Department of Human Services, but even with our, our partner agencies, sister agencies. Nancy New is co-director of Families First for Mississippi. She says they're working to provide help all over the state. We're in all 82 counties, whether we have a full-blown Families First Center or either we have a partner who may be operating out of their facility doing our services. So uh, what that looks like is the funding uh, we have, we're trying to reach as many people. Now, we're very busy always uh, hoping and striving to get more funding to sustain the program uh, throughout the years. 
Jess Dickinson is Director of Child Protective Services in Mississippi. He tells our Desiree Fraser he's excited to see coordinated efforts. This is an effort by many to bring resources together so that when our workers are out working with families and children, uh, they will have access to all of those organizations that provide services to the children. As thus far, uh, in most states, uh, there are many organizations that provide services to children, but they're not coordinated. And this is an effort to coordinate all of those services so that our workers can direct the children and the families to the places they need. I would think that it would make your job a little bit easier because one of the challenges that you have talked about is trying to help families stay together and and where does the money come from, where do the services come from? Well, that's right. It uh, it certainly makes my night better for sleeping uh, because it's it's always troubling when we don't have resources for a family that where a husband needs job, a job or a wife, or a single mother needs work, or they need uh, child care, or uh, maybe a mom doesn't know a lot about child care, how to change a diaper. And uh, there are just so many organizations that provide those kind of services and training, and we're excited to bring them all together and, and make them available to our caseworkers and to our children. Child Protective Services Director Jess Dickinson. Jess Dickinson is the director of Child Protective Services in Mississippi. He tells our Desiree Fraser he's excited to see coordinated efforts. The counties in the pilot include Hines, Lee, and Lauderdale. Coming up, will more Mississippi moms breastfeed now that it's publicly protected by law? This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. If you miss anything on MPB Think Radio, you can always stay up to date by logging on to our website at mpbonline.org or use your mobile device and download our MPB public media app. This is MPB Think Radio, where Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Breastfeeding in public is now protected by law in all 50 states. But according to data, almost half of moms in Mississippi aren't breastfeeding. In 2016, 52% of women in Mississippi ever breastfed, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That's the lowest rate in the country. Getty Israel is a population health specialist and founder of Sisters in Birth. She tells MPB's Ashley Norwood, healthcare providers can play a major role in bridging the gap. Breastfeeding is a preventive-based care. It is a primary preventive-based care. That means it's something that the individual can do to reduce the likelihood of developing a disease. And in this case, breastfeeding, as we know, can reduce the likelihood of the mom and the baby experiencing a diverse number of conditions, from infections to even pediatric cancer, diabetes, and other diseases. So it's something that the mother can do. So you have women who have no interest in breastfeeding, don't know the benefits of breastfeeding, who are going into doctor's offices and getting what should be quality care, but doctors are not saying, I want you to do something as simple as breastfeed your baby. Because too often that mother does not get the help she needs to latch on. 
There's nothing in her environment, in her world, to suggest to her that this is good for her or her baby. So if this is foreign to you, and it is particularly to poor rural women and especially to poor rural black women who are less likely to breastfeed, and I think the most important source, face, expert who can give her that message is first the doctor. He doesn't have to say much because we already know that patients tend to listen to what their doctors have to say. And even if they don't do it, they still believe that what he has said is the truth and nothing but the truth. Population health consultant Getty Israel. Mississippian Kelly Williams is a a breastfeeding mom. She tells MPB's Ashley Norwood the practice is necessary and natural with her daughter Penelope. We do like on-demand feeding, so she probably eats like eight times a day, eight to ten times a day, and then um, maybe like two or three times at night. But she sleeps pretty much through the night. She wakes up like once or twice. So why did you decide to breastfeed? You know, you had other options to choose from. I'm sure you knew about that um, before and, you know, after she was born. But why did you choose breastfeeding? Well, first because of the cost, not having to buy formula. And um, then the hospital I chose, they um, encouraged breastfeeding. And so they, um, as soon as I had her, they, like, put her on me so we could start, like, having a connection. And because she was... Born early, I wanted her to get the most natural source of nutrients so she would start growing and gaining weight faster. And, I mean, I don't have anything to compare it to, but I think it helped because she um, she gained weight fast and she was able to keep up her body temperature and her weight and be able to leave the hospital. And I also just chose it because just from reading and um, all the everything the doctors told us at the hospital that it would just be the best for her. Um, you know, your body is made just for the baby, so the milk that your body makes is made like tailored just for them. So talk about breastfeeding in public. Have you ever done that? And tell me about some different situations when you have. Um, I have a couple times. Most recently was at the park. Um, it's not a big deal. People, for the most part, I think it's more accepted now um people don't like stare at you or anything and if they do they'll like know you know to just not like kind of like walk past you and not like linger around and give you your space did you feel any kind of way before you decided to breastfeed in public no not really i mean it i guess if if you were uncomfortable like exposing yourself in public but i mean that's what your body parts are made for so it's not like you know, it's not like you're doing anything unnatural or weird. And or like over-sexualized, that's what a lot of people sometimes have said. I think people who um, feel that way, they're, they're not looking at it as like a ne- just a necessary part of life. You know, it's not like you're doing anything wrong. You're just trying to take care of your baby and do what's best for your baby. I think it is over-sexualized and, you know, I'm not like trying to flash men or like get attention from men or anything like that I don't know why people feel like that it's really not a big deal and you know I would say if you see somebody breastfeeding their baby if you are uncomfortable one get over it and if you're uncomfortable it's only going to last like 10-15 minutes and go about your day Kelly Williams with our Ashley Norwood the Mississippi State Department of Health declared August breastfeeding awareness month 
Coming up, find out how new rules in public housing could protect residents from secondhand smoke exposure. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Support for MPB comes from the University of Mississippi School of Education, working to prepare the next generation of teachers, counselors, and educational leaders through online graduate degrees and hybrid doctoral programs. Details at education.olemiss.edu. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. All 50 public housing agencies in Mississippi are now smoke-free as mandated by the Department of Housing and Urban Development. HUD has passed a ruling requiring each agency to regulate where smoking is allowed on the premises. They say it does not require any resident to quit smoking or tobacco use. Rochelle Culp is with the American Lung Association. She tells us there's no safe level of exposure to smoke. HUD has been working on this decision for several years now. They started back in the, around 2012-13, and then they actually uh, had a ruling uh, late last year, late 2016. If someone's living in their apartment or their public housing and they say, well, look, this is my own place. I can smoke if I want to. How is my smoking affecting anybody else around me? What do you say to that? There's no safe level to secondhand smoke exposure. Secondhand smoke in a multi-housing unit can travel through the cracks in walls, through electrical outlets, under the doors. So there's no safe level to secondhand smoke exposure. And unfortunately, secondhand smoke exposure kills many individuals in the United States. Over 7,000 individuals each year die from lung cancer from secondhand smoke, and over 33,000 other individuals die from chronic illnesses like heart disease that's uh, attributed to secondhand smoke. If somebody breaks the rules and they decide to smoke, what are the penalties? HUD gave each public housing authority some limitations that they could add in. So actually, each housing authority has their own set rules. Now, there were certain criteria that each housing authority have to adopt, but also as far as penalties and how it will be implemented and managed, HUD allowed each public housing authority some uh, leeway on that because, of course, we know every public housing unit is not the same. Those individuals know their residents better, so they were able to put in and implement a policy that's going to be successful for their area. So, for instance, they may may decide that if someone wants to smoke outside, they have to be a certain distance away from the housing In some of the policies, there will be a 25-foot foot level, up to a 25-foot level outside the front front door of a building. So those public housing authorities could have added that in, or they could have eliminated that totally and have the entire housing unit smoke-free, the entire property smoke-free. Rochelle, in Mississippi, how many people will be affected by this new law? Uh, We have 50 public housing units here in Mississippi. All of them have passed the rule before the deadline date. I'm so proud to say that. Does the American Lung Association think that by banning smoking in public housing that it may uh, result in people quitting smoking or not starting to smoke? We are very hopeful that eliminating 
smoking and in multi-housing units and federally funded multi-housing units will encourage individuals to quit smoking. And because of that fact, we are offering cessation programs to individuals that want to quit smoking. And then, too, we are uh, soliciting cessation navigators. And cessation navigators will be residents of the apartment, of the multi-housing units that will go out and um, be able to provide information and resources for individuals that want to quit smoking. So say if they had a tenant meeting and the smoke cessation came up, this individual would be there able to give them resources that they could reach out to to get assistance in quitting smoking. And then also, too, we have our gold standard program called Freedom from Smoking, and that will be offered at some of the multi-housing units as well and throughout the state. Rochelle Culp is a health promotion specialist for the American Lung Association. Rochelle, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. In other news, James Meredith, the first African-American to attend the University of Mississippi, will be inducted into its Alumni Hall of Fame this October. Meredith first attended the school in 1962 in the face of violence. Now 85 years old, Meredith sat down with MPB's Desiree Frazier discussing the missions he says are from God, not man. What should people take away from this event, this honor? That that it is only the beginning of one of James Meredith's missions from God. The first one was to break the system of white supremacy. The second one was to expose and challenge that all-pervasive fear that kept blacks, not only in Mississippi, but all over America, all over the world, in their place. It was fear. And James Meredith had a mission from God to challenge that. And the present mission from God, Meredith says he's on his last mission, and it's from God. What is that mission now? To raise the character level of Mississippi Christians, starting with the black Christian. And for the first time, Christians will be fulfilling their covenant commitment to God. And that's what James Meredith's present mission is. So tell me, when you went to the university, did you feel completely isolated, or did you feel... Isolated? Let me tell you something. I went to the University of Mississippi in October 1962, and I stayed there long enough to get a major degree and two minor degrees. And I never saw one person there, not one. Because there wasn't nobody there important enough for me to see. So you kept to yourself and did your thing? Kept to myself. Every time I, every picture I see, there there are all kind of people all around me. You mean kept to myself? I said I didn't see them. But you understand, if that was true, I wouldn't be just starting this last mission from God if I wasn't scared like everybody else, I was scared of something different. 
I was scared. If I told the blacks what they need to do, they wouldn't like it, and they wouldn't like me, and I like everybody else wanted to be like. And God said, look here, I done kept you all these years, and most everybody you know dead, and you still here, and, and you still scared to do my will. That can't go on much longer. And that was about the same time that the university decided they're going to make me a member of their Hall of Fame. I think it was a godsend. So you're going to go, you're going to participate in all of the ceremony? I'm going to make a less than three-minute statement, but it's going to change the world. James Meredith is one of five inductees, including longtime U.S. Mississippi Senator Thad Cochran. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Money Talks. Then at 10, it's In Legal Terms. And at 11 o'clock, stay tuned for Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. If you missed part of the show today, find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app. And join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio.